0: Comedian Adam Conover has already had a great career, from his star turn on Adam Runs Everything to several character voices on BoJack Horseman to his podcast Factually. And now he's got a new show where he turns his self-styled investigative comedy to government. The G Word with Adam Conover, his new Netflix series dropped on May 19th. It's about government, how it works, how it doesn't work sometimes, what it does overall. Some of the topics he explores: food safety, weather prediction, disaster response, GPS, public health, the money supply, and a lot more. He's here on the Political Theater to talk about the show, including his interactions with one of its producers, a certain former president who's now in show business. Adam Conover, welcome to Political Theater. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's it's great to have you. Uh, so let's let's talk about the why this series, why why now? You know, as, as I mentioned, you've got you've got this great. Career, you know, for those of us who have been following you, um, it's been fun and it's been a, ver- a varied thing. Like I'm sure we have a lot of, uh, especially Bojack Horseman people <laughs> who also listen sure. uh, to our po- podcast. But it's it's been it's it's like what's he going to do next? And so let's find out why why this why now?
1: Well, so look, first of all, uh, I came, I created this show after doing Adam Ruins Everything on True TV, now available on HBO Max for you know almost five years. Um, and I was looking for another opportunity to take my comedy documentary format to the next level. People know me from that show. My belief is that mm-hmm. I can use comedy to talk about almost any issue under the sun that uh, that you know people are curious, they want to be informed about interesting issues. You just have to make it a little bit interesting using comedy and make it go down a little bit easier and people will flock to it. And that's what I discovered on Adam Ruins everything. and I was kind of on a mission to show that more broadly. Uh, so around 2018, I had read a book called the fifth risk by Michael Lewis, um, which is, uh, covered the Trump transition, but it also covered, uh, his discovery about like all these incredible duties that the government has that he was not aware of, um, such as the national weather service, which is, you know, the, or the origin point for every weather forecast that you will ever see comes from the national weather service. And how, you know, corporate interests have been trying to dismantle the National Weather Service. I read that book and I was like, this book is incredible. Obviously, I love Michael Lewis, who isn't a fan of his. I sort of filed it away. Oh, I'd love to do a story about that on television sometime. About seven months later, I got a call from my manager and he said, um, hey, so the Obama's production company has optioned this book, The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis. They don't know what to do with it. They want to make a TV show, but they don't know what to do with it. Do you want to go in and pitch? And I said, yes, absolutely I do. (laughs) My pitch was basically, how about I do it, right? How about I use my investigative comedy format, documentary format that I have pioneered to investigate all the ways the government affects our lives, good and bad. We go to meet government workers and people who are affected by the work that happens in the government. And we make it really real and direct to people um, because, you know, this is a time when people are losing faith in our institutions, you know, where where the the populace is getting more and more cynical and, uh, you know, taking a good hard look at what the government actually does, warts and all can be an antidote to that. Not to say that it's going to be all positive, but that it's going to be realistic. Because cynicism is just, you know, neither optimism nor pessimism are true, right? It's it's about having a realistic sense of, of what is good and bad. They bit on that idea. Um, we uh, took the took the show to Netflix. They loved it. And uh, here we are today, about three years later. It was a long road because of COVID, but that's the origin story.
0: Yeah, and I, I want to just emphasize, just as a, you know, my, um, I'm, I, you know, sort of moonlight as a podcaster. I'm in my in my day job. You know, I'm I'm editing uh, CQ and Roll Call, two two newsrooms that have a you know they we try to cover the government in in all. Yeah. It's it, it, as you said, warts and all. And the thing that that really struck me was. You're not just giving like the the overview um, of like what you know the Federal Reserve does and so forth, or what the USDA does, but you're actually going and talking to USDA food inspectors and talking yes. to you know these these volunteer weather watchers and and yeah. the people who make the make the National Weather Service actually you know work on the at the ground level. And it's just like it's such a great. That's what I'm constantly telling you know people who I work with like. Go talk to somebody who who's, who doesn't have communications director after their title. Like talk, talk to yeah. a real person doing real work. Um, yeah, you know, and 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 find out what their story is. And it's really it's this great exploration of government uh, outside of Washington and and how it affects everybody's lives.
1: Thank you so much for saying so. I mean, yeah, that was what my interest was. You know, when we were in our writers' room talking about with our writers and researchers talking about what are the topics that we want to cover. What are the biggest Holy shit, facts about the government. One of the ones that came up with uh, that came up was the government literally inspects every single piece of meat that you eat, every single meat inspection plan. And we're talking a hundred billion pounds a year of meat. Every one is inspected by hand by the US government. And the question that came to my mind is, what is it like to do that job? I mean, it's so unusual if you think about it that it's a private business, it's a huge factory, but there are USDA employees who get a federal paycheck from the federal government every single day, they are there working cheek by jowl, uh, to use a <laughs> meat term, uh, with the 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 factory workers on the line. And they, you know, they, they have the ability to stop the line at any moment, right? There's a big red button right by their conveyor belt. And if they see something wrong, they can hit that button, boop, you know, the whole thing shuts down. And everyone says, what the hell's going on? Oh, the USDA shut the plant down, right? And uh, so this is a this is a blue collar job. This is a working class job, right? Um, this is not a. This is not a an expensive, highly paid Washington consultant d- doing this. This is someone who, you know, we we shot at a Car- Cargill beef processing facility in Schuyler, Nebraska. This is someone who lives in Schuyler, Nebraska, next to all the other people who work at the factory, um, doing this what the hell is it like to do that job, you know? And what what motivates somebody to do it? And meeting those people and getting the answers to that, those questions was really my favorite part of this entire show. You also got to fly into the eye of a hurricane. <laughs> yes, that was, uh, I'm not going to say that's my favorite thing that I did. It, it's my favorite thing that that we see on camera, right? Like it, the footage is incredible. Actually physically doing it, a little bit uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> but, well, I think no, it's it was amazing. It's the splash card for the for the series on, on Netflix now is is you yes. in that plane, and you look happy, yes. which does not betray <laughs> how it probably does not portray how much trepidation you probably had, like as you're flying into a hurricane.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that was we went up with the U.S. Air Force's hurricane hunters. Uh, the and what people don't realize. Is that every single time you are watching, you know, you're watching the weather channel during hurricane season, you're watching the local news during hurricane season. And they say there's a hurricane coming for Florida. Here's where it's going. Here's where it is. Here's the cone of probability. Right. The only reason anyone has that data is because pretty much at the moment that you're watching the show, there is a U.S. government plane, either from the Air Force or from NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric, uh, Agency, association, yeah. I forget. Um, but uh, they are literally flying into the hurricane. The reason they do that is because the only way to get a fix on the exact center of the hurricane is to fly through it and use the wind instruments to measure which way the wind is blowing, figure out exactly, you know, what the circular pattern is. Then they can find the dead center. Then they fly, so they fly right through the eye and out again. Then they turn around and they fly back through again. And they do that in a clover leaf pattern like four to eight times. Then they land and another plane takes off and does the same thing, like an eight to 10 hour mission doing this, depending on how far out the plane, uh, the hurricane is. Um, And like I had no until we started researching it, I had no clue that that was happening. I grew up watching hurricane season because I grew up on Long Island and my grandmother lived in South Florida in a town called Homestead. She lived through Hurricane Andrew. So every hurricane season, my dad was glued to the Weather Channel. And, uh, you know, it was a really dramatic event in our house. We knew all the hurricane names and I didn't know that there were people that my tax dollars are paying for, right? Flying through this over and over again. And one of the coolest things is, so first of all, you know, you get bounced around a ton, obviously it's very nauseating. The way they put it to me is, a normal plane, a normal pilot tries to avoid turbulence as best they can. They try to go around it. This plane flies into turbulence. So they can measure the turbulence. So it's you know like eight hours of just bounce, 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 and it's a very sparse plane. There's no nice seats to sit in. There's a jump seat you sit in to buckle yourself into uh, for takeoff and landing. And the rest of the time, it's more like being on like a like a boat. You know, like it's a, just a big empty you know space with trip hazards everywhere. You know, you're you're walking around. Um, so and, this was not uh, the
0: time so- to eat chili dogs for breakfast. <laughs>
1: No, not at all. We bought so we brought, I think we the second time we had to do this twice, by the way, because the first time the hurricane didn't form. So we had to go up a second time, uh, weeks later. And uh we were taking off from St. Croix, which is a U.S. Virgin Island, and I believe we brought tamales along because we knew that those would keep in a cooler. Because there's no meal service on this plane, and it's a long flight. Uh so you know, you're you're getting bounced around, you're going through this, you know, these gray clouds, and then you break through the eye wall. And it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. The sun is shining suddenly down from the sky. You can see all the way down to the ocean, completely clear. But then ahead of you, on the other side of the eye, is just this mile-high wall of clouds. Like, right, you're just staring at it, you know? And it's it, it was, like, absolutely astonishing to see. And I turned to Mark Withy, who's the officer uh, who joined me and and explained everything I was seeing. And I was like, you see this every day? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and it never gets old, you know? Um, he's just, you know, it, it, this is this is like, in terms of experiences to get to have, this is like going to the moon or going to the bottom of the ocean, like in terms of seeing, this is one of the most powerful forces on earth and they're flying into the middle of it. And they do it every day. And the, and the reason they do it is, yeah, hey, it's a paycheck and everything else. But, you know, these are folks who live on the Gulf Coast, you know? And they know that, you know, they're going to save lives. They're going to save their own family's lives by doing this. Um, and that's the only reason they do it. Uh, a- a- apart from, I mean, sure. They're also thrill jockeys and they're You know, they've got to uh, hang around with pilots long enough. They all, they all have the top gun attitude, but you know, uh, fundamentally they can make more money flying private jets. You know, they're doing it because it needs to be done.
0: Yeah, no, it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty stunning, you know, coverage that, that you all got. and, as as nerve wracking as that that was, let let's let's talk about how nerve wracking was it to talk to Michael Lewis after the <laughs> series came out, because uh, he was he was on your podcast recently on, was. on factually. How did Michael
1: Lewis feel about your adaptation uh, of, <laughs> of, of of his work? <laughs> Well, it was, look, I've been such a fan of his for such a long time and he was very complimentary and I, I, you know, couldn't have appreciated that more. He joined us in our writer's room for one week at the very beginning, just to sort of bounce ideas around and share his process. And the thing is that man is just a story machine. You know, you could point him at a one person town in the middle of the desert and he could find you a fascinating story there. He's just a truffle pig for it. You know, he can't help himself. And, uh, so the fact that he, you know, thought that some of the stories that we did were interesting, you know, we did a story about, um, uh, GPS about how, you know, the Apple and Google, you know, take all the credit for GPS, or we tend to give them all the credit, but it was actually invented by the U S government took them 50 years to invent it and to perfect the technology to make the receivers tiny and cheap, to put the 16 satellites in the sky. And the government still runs it to this day. And you know, Apple Maps, Google Maps, Tinder, Uber, none of those would exist if not for the taxpayer dollars that were spent and the innovations by these government scientists. And Michael Lewis said, I saw that and that blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. And I was like, wow, that is a highlight of my career to be able to blow the mind of a man who's blown my mind so many times.
0: And and you actually got to visit the Space Force like you yes. know kind of HQ where they still operate these satellites and as as yes. you point out one of them is operated literally by like a 20 year old. <laughs>
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, that's because that's the military, right? They put you in charge of, they put these, you know, first year airmen, I think is the term, or actually, um, I forget what the rank is now because they, that, that unit recently transitioned, specialist, Specialist, thank you. Uh, they transitioned from being air force to space force. So a lot of people are making fun of the air, the space force, but, uh, put some, put some respect on their name, you know, because they're now in charge of the GPS constellation. Um, yeah, they put, you know, these young folks like in charge of, these satellites, just 16 satellites that serve literally the entire world's GPS needs for free. Uh, no one is charged to use these satellites. They're just a, a public service, a public utility that the U.S. military runs for the benefit of the world. Um, and yeah, it was crazy meeting him because, like I say on the show, like when I was 20, I was a dumbass. Like I, I couldn't do anything. I was barely able to string a joke together. I was like trying to work my way into a comedy theater that would let me do comedy for free, you know, uh, without, without even being paid, this guy's running satellites. Um, so it was like pretty, pretty amazing to meet him and to, to see how they do their work. I mean, it's 10 people who are literally running the entire world's GPS constellation. Unbelievable. And
0: as cool as so many of these, you know, sort of stories and episodes and set pieces are that you're in. I mean, you also ask some kind of tough questions. There's a, about the failures of, say, the public mm-hmm. health system or FEMA and so forth, and I, you know, like the timing of this podcast is weird too, because we've we're we are we are watching in real time the failure of our government to address, you know, a spate of mass shootings. You know, the, yes. the most recent one in in Uvalde, and you know, there is there are very few people in Washington who think that there's going to be any change in Washington anytime soon to address this. Correct. Like, talk about how like your process cuz i know like i mean it you you as you said you've got a writers room you've got a process where you go through this i mean but so, some of it must have just been maddening to to address some of these issues when you when you look at the failure of you know the the federal government to address the
1: covid-19 pandemic you know in, initially absolutely it w- it was maddening and and you know we did that entire episode on COVID, um, because we were living it when we were writing the show. I mean, we had, you know, our, our writers' room had been together for only a little over a month when COVID-19, when the shutdown happened. I remember our researchers had been on for a month. Our writers, our comedy writers had been on for three days when the Wednesday hit. I believe it was a Wednesday when the NBA suspended its season. Mm-hmm. And then by the following Monday, we were all on Zoom. You know, it was it was so fast. Um and we had been considering doing topics about like, hey, let's talk about the FAA. Let's do an episode about flying and talk about how the FAA, you know, got too cozy with Boeing and led to those, uh, you know, those two crashes of the uh, of the Max planes. Right. Um, that sort of thing. And then COVID hit and we suddenly personally felt abandoned by our government, yeah. you know, that that like we're looking around going, hold on a second. Where's where's the testing? Right. What What is where is it? You know, where is the support to people who need it? um, we suddenly had these urgent questions that we wanted to answer. Uh, and, uh, we spent the next year writing scripts, researching and writing the topic as it was happening around us. Um, so that we could, you know, find the answers and share them. And I'm, I'm very proud that we were able to, uh, you know, I'm a critic by nature. Uh, I am, you know, I love telling these stories of what's working. Um, and I love giving people the realistic feeling about, you know, realistic sense of, of what isn't is not working, but, uh, you know, the questions of, of why, what things are not working and why is so present for me, you know? So, you know, when we're looking at, uh, I mean, this is another one that happened like, you know, pretty, pretty, it was very present in mind as we were writing, you know, the hurricanes that, you know, a hurricane hits Texas, uh, hurricane Harvey, I believe hit Texas. And there's massive aid. Hurricane Maria hits Puerto Rico. They can't even get bottled water. And we're sitting there going, hey, they're, the government's flying oh, planes. Oh, to the hurricane." paper towels that, that Trump threw out. <laughs> don't, don't forget the paper towels. <laughs> of course not. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, like, h- how can we not be able to bring enough bottled water to people, to Americans, right, who, who have just been hit by a hurricane? Uh, thousands of people died because of of those failures. Um, and uh, so what we found was that most of these problems are systemic. Most of these problems are structural in terms of how the agencies are structured. So FEMA is one of the worst structured agencies. It's completely dependent on the whims of state politicians and, uh, you know, the legislature, the, the national legislature. It, you know, so why did uh, Texas get so much attention? Puerto Rico got none? Well,, you know, FEMA has two powerful senators, right? And the senators are on FEMA's appropriations committee. Um, Puerto Rico has no representation in Congress, right. right? They don't have anybody who can who can call and say, you're going to have a hard time the next congressional hearing if you don't step up right now. So FEMA is like, especially at the whim of the political process in a way that, you know, the Air Force and the Hurricane Hunters are not. As far as uh, COVID-19 goes, what we found um, and this will help me get to uh, my my our sort of biggest point about the show, it was actually in many ways, there's, there was plenty that was run, done wrong on the national level, but an unacknowledged story or an underreported story is the local piece of it, that um, our local public health departments have been systematically defunded by politicians from both parties over the past 30 years. Um, and those local public health departments are the ones that yeah, this is the fire department for public health. This is the police department. These are these are the people who are making sure that you know uh, uh, foodborne illnesses aren't spreading, that uh, STDs aren't spreading. They're making sure that like a more garden variety style pandemic doesn't sweep through your town, and uh, they're they're making sure that kids have adequate vitamins and shit, like basic things. And we have been eviscerating them for decades. Um, and so we went down to a town. Uh, or we went to a county called Lowndes County in Alabama, which is one of the poorest counties in the country. It's, a, a predominantly black County. At one point it had the highest COVID-19 positivity rate in the country. And the, the reason for that is that in that town, there's one doctor in the entire town who is there because the federal government pays for him to be there. It's a federally, he's at a federally qualified health center, which is a health center that only exists because of federal funding. Um, and there is one public health clinic that uh, that serves the whole county. And I we went and met this incredible woman named Shawanda Searles, who, uh, you know, she is the office manager. She is the personnel manager. She is coordinating people's care. She's doing the paperwork. She's doing the jobs of three people. Um, and she's an incredibly dedicated public servant, but she doesn't have the staff that she needs to see all the people who she needs to see. So why is COVID running rampant through this county? It's because they don't have the staff they need to educate people on social distancing. When the vaccines hit, they didn't have the staff they needed to make sure people get vaccinated. I mean, so much attention has been given to the small minority of people who say, I don't want a vaccine. Screw you. Right. And there are those people. But the story of why America has a low vaccination rate is largely because we did not do the outreach we needed to those people. Like if you went to people in Lowndes County door to door and said, Hey, why didn't you get vaccinated? They'd say, well, I don't have transportation and there's no public transportation in this town or I'm housebound, right? Or I have kids to watch. I'm taking care of five kids right now, or I work 20 hours a day, you know, and no one went around to those people one by one with a syringe and said, Hey, we got the vaccine for you right now. Would you like us to come back in three weeks? Um, And if they had, it would have been a different story in that county. But instead, a lot of people died. And now that's a poor county in Alabama. Right. Um, But the same thing happened here where I live in California. I mean, in California, we had a budget surplus a couple decades ago. Arnold Schwarzenegger literally when he was the governor, Republican governor, literally built a pandemic preparedness stockpile that had like mobile hospitals and crap like that. Um, When uh, Governor Jerry Brown became governor, suddenly there's a little bit of belt tightening going on, a little bit of budget trouble. He cuts that entire program less than a decade before a pandemic actually hit. Um, So, uh, you know, those are the sort of investigations that, you know, really are this show's mission is to expose what happened. Um, And our entire final episode, by the way, it is disheartening stuff, right? Our entire final episode is me grappling with uh, what do we do as citizens when the government, which is so big and so distant from us sometimes, uh, when it is not serving us or when it's hurting or killing us, for instance, in the case of our criminal justice system, which is killing and imprisoning innocent Americans at an enormous rate, how do we actually make change in the government? And that is what our entire season finale is about.
0: And, you know, you you open the show kind of with a... a, a you know, a bit with Barack Obama, you know, with yeah. this thing of him like doing the, his taxes and it's, it's a little jokey and and it's fun and so forth. And then in that final episode, you do another bit where you guys eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and you kind of, <laughs> you slightly give your producer the business about it. Yeah. I, I mean, and was that, I mean, I know that again, the, these things are scripted and 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 so forth, but there actually seemed like a little tension there. I mean, did, yeah? were you a little intimidated about like, Asking the 44th president of the United States, like, how, how are we supposed to really keep like hope alive, you know, it, it, so to speak, or, you know, believe in change when, you know, like these things. And I was, I mean, to, to Obama's credit, he just, he called out Mitch McConnell for one, uh, sure. which I, I didn't expect, but was there, was that a little tense for you? A little? Did you have a little bit of uh, shyness at, at first about, you know, kind of calling him
1: out on, on, <laughs> on your show? I did not have shyness about it. Uh, it was tense. I knew that I was creating a tense situation, but I did it because it was what I needed to do mm-hmm. and what I wanted to do. So, so first of all, that conversation was not scripted. The you know the little comedy scenes that we do at the very beginning of the show um, are scripted, but that was an unscripted conversation. We okay. talked for about an hour and we edited it down. It, it does um, and, come across as, as, you know, very impromptu. I mean, I, I so I was, yeah. I was wondering about
0: that and that's, that's good to know. Cause it does. Yeah. It's, it, you you almost feel this simmering like
1: Obama, like, Hmm, what are you asking yeah. here? <laughs> oh yeah. That was there. I mean, I asked him, look, you know, I, I say, so look, I, I, in that conversation, I asked him things that I've wanted to ask him my entire life because you know, when he was elected in 2008, that was a big moment in my political awakening. Right, that I was a I was in my 20s, and that was what his election did for young people. It Said, "Hey, you can be a part of this movement. You can create change." It was the largest mass movement for political change in my lifetime, um, apart from I would say the the movement after the after George Floyd's murder um, would be the only thing I would say is comparable. Um, but in the case of uh, Barack Obama's election, he won. Right? Uh, oh my gosh, we did it. And, you know, I, I didn't see the change that I expected to, that I expected to see back in 2008. That's not what I saw over the course of his presidency. And I wanted to ask him about that. You know, I, here's my opportunity to do so. And I knew that, look. This isn't a talk show, right? I can't be Jimmy Fallon and ruffle his hair and say, oh, geez, so cool to meet you, sir. You know, this is a this is a show. First of all, he's producing, but I have editorial independence on the show. I made that very clear. With his staff, when we started, that I would not be following the Obama party line, um, and that I wouldn't do the show if I was made to do so. I'd be doing my own investigation, and they agreed to that. And so, there's a bunch of times in the show that we honestly criticize the Obama administration. We criticize the drone strike program. Uh, we criticize um, the sort of neoliberal turn towards, uh, you know, private sector solutions, especially regarding health care uh, and, you know, a number of other times as well. And those are times that I know that, you know, the, the political folks in Obama's organization disagree with our, what we say in that segment. And I know that because they told me, and I said, well, we're going to have to agree to disagree because this is my show, not yours. Um, but so that's the kind of show we're doing. And that meant that like the, The conversation I had with him needed to be a little bit prickly um, in order for it to be a show that had any kind of integrity at all. But also what I wanted to do more than anything, as someone who has seen him on television, you know, for my entire life, for my entire adult life, as someone who's read his book, as someone who's seen him speak, was to push him a little bit and get him out of that rut. He's the best speaker in the world. Right. But we know what he's going to say imagine yourself asking a Barack Obama question. You can imagine his answer and you'd be right. Cause you know exactly what he says. And I knew that I knew what he was going to say. And I knew that I wanted him to go further than that. And I wanted to give him a little bit of a shove, right. To get to a little bit realer of a place. And I'm very happy that, that we were able to do that. So he says in that interview, you know, I say, well, we didn't see as much change as we expected. And he says, well, you know, uh, change is hard in this country by design, but if we can work really hard, we can make things 10% better. And I say, well, you know, 10% for climate change isn't enough. And you didn't run on 10% better. Right. So what are we supposed to do here? You know? And I can tell when he said that, you can see his reaction. He's like, what the, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, I thought stare. this guy, what'd you say? It's kind of a death stare. He gives you. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. He's like, aha. Uh-huh. Uh huh. All right. We got to do this now. But, you know, to his credit, he went with me to that spot and we had a we had a real conversation about it, Um, about what we do with those feelings of disappointment. And and specifically, you know, he says over and over again in his book, which is uh, I think a, he's such a wonderful writer. Right. There's there's many things I really enjoyed about that book. But he says over and over again, it's almost like a tick. He says, you know, there are folks who would say that I should have gone further or I should have pushed harder for X, Y, Z. And you know what? Maybe they're right, except I was the one sitting in the chair and there were limitations on what I could accomplish. And I did the best I could under those circumstances, under the limitations. And every time I read that, my thought was, well, why should we accept those limitations? Isn't that what leadership is? Isn't leadership saying, I'm going to change what everybody thinks is possible. Isn't that the entire premise of his campaign? His campaign, people are like, no black man named Barack Hussein Obama is ever gonna be elected to the presidency. And he said, like hell I am, of course I am. I'm gonna expand your notion of what's possible. And so why did that not happen? And so putting that to him was incredibly important to me. And what we ended up having was a really great conversation about the limitations faced when you become a politician versus when you work in the realm of activism, right? Because activists get to be uncompromising and politicians don't. Right. Uh, And that moved us into a conversation about local activism and, and, you know, led us to the entire rest of the episode that you see. Um, But uh, yeah, I was, I I really appreciate you mentioning that part of the interview because that was honestly one of the parts of the show that I, that I thought about the most and, and I put the most care into to get, it exactly how I felt it needed to be for the show to be credible.
0: This is this is I think what sets it apart from from a show that's just like, hey, I'm gonna go do some cool shit, you know? Like, yeah, it, it's bracketed, you know, it, it's bracketed by this, and and I think that that's you know that that pushes it into. a a realm that is that is a lot more like journal like journalism you know that that uh you know you're asking uncomfortable questions you are quite literally uh afflicting the comfortable uh in 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 that in that situation (laughs) um so are we going to get any more uh is is there going to be a G word part two, uh, season two or or season one point five or however they I know I'm always confused about how they number these things you know it's like the Walking Dead like they're on season seven point five nine two or whatever you
1: know? oh well sure I I can tell you look first of all if you want a little bit of entertainment industry uh you know behind the scenes how the sausage is made the reason they do that for so many television series and I say this as someone who this happened to me on Adam ruins everything the reason they'll do a season. or whatever part two is because they uh, they save money that way. The network saved money because all of their talent and all their union contracts are based on giving everybody bumps every time a season goes up. Uh, But if they say instead of look, a season could be as many as 26 episodes. So instead of doing a 13 episode season five and a 13 episode season six, we do a 13 episode season five and then Another 13 episodes of season five a year later, they save 3% all, on all their union contracts and all their talent contracts. And so it, it frankly is uh, uh, pretty scammy and something that, that uh, you know, people are starting to talk about in the entertainment industry as as being a way that the companies are cheating people out of money. Uh, now, Netflix hasn't done that to me. That, on, that's on great. Project, that's, that's good yeah, to know. Yeah. <laughs> Next time you see that, um, I remember they did that to Mad Men in the final year of oh, Mad yeah. Men, you know. Uh, those they aired a year apart, but they said it was the second half of the last season. Yeah. Anyway, uh, regarding this show, you know, from your lips to Netflix's ears, I would dearly love to do more of it. Uh, Netflix has called this a limited series so far, which is their term for a mini series. But you know, in success, uh, who knows what could happen? And um, you know, we're still within the very crucial first ten and twenty eight day uh, numbers period. So if you enjoy the show. Uh, the best thing you can do is uh, binge the whole thing. Watch the whole thing. Don't watch the first two episodes and then stop watching because then they'll they'll count you as having lost interest. Watch the whole thing in <laughs> one night if you if you feel like it. Binge it, and we might get a chance at a second season because there's a lot more stories oh, that yeah. I would love to tell. You know, we left an entire episode on the cutting room floor that was going to be called power. And it was going to be about how the government safeguards our nuclear weapons and and how they have sometimes failed to do so, times at which we've come perilously close to a nuclear weapon accidentally exploding on American soil. Uh, Goldsboro, call- North
0: Carolina. Correct.
1: <laughs> my, they, my, they- my, my friend, uh, for, a former
0: editor uh, here at Roll Call, he's now at Morning Console, Cam Easley. Are you listening, Cam? His He likes to say... The the government dropped the A bomb on my on my
1: hometown. He's from Goldsboro, North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, it did, and it miraculously did not go off, right? But it <laughs> oh, but spoiler it, alert! They, thanks. You the know? accident it it fell out of a plane and hit the ground. <laughs> like my God, and that's not the only. They're called Broken Arrow incidents. It's not the only one.
0: Great great movie from the '90s, by the way, with uh, Travolta and Christian Slater. Ah, uh, yes, Broken yeah. Arrow. And Frank Whaley even says, he's he's the good guy, he says,
1: like, I don't know if I'm more scared that this happened or that there's a term for it. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, the problem with it being in a movie is you think it's something that can only happen in a movie. Right. But it, it has happened multiple times in real life, and most people don't know. Uh, the government is also in charge of storing all of our nuclear waste in these gigantic caverns deep below the ground. And on the theme of power... There is, uh, we found on the Marshall Islands, which is a different nation, but it's basically kind of a, a client nation of the United States because of how much power we have over the, over the island. There's an enormous dome on this island that is filled with American nuclear waste from our nuclear bomb tests, and it's leaking. And the Marshallese people are saying well, get this the hell out of here. We didn't make these nuclear weapons. And the US government says, nah, that's on your soil. That's your problem. We don't know what that is because we have so much power because of our nuclear weapons. We wrote that entire episode and we ended up putting it on the back burner because at the end of our writing process, we said, we need to talk about how we make change and we need to talk about the importance of local government. And we devoted an entire episode to that instead. And I'm very proud that we did but that's just one story that we could tell. Um, we, there's plenty more to tell about the federal government.
0: Well, maybe that can be the te- teaser role for, for season two. So yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your
0: time and, and good luck again. The, this is on Netflix now it's streaming. You can stream all six episodes. Uh, you know, it's, it's we got a holiday weekend coming up. Uh, so it, yeah. it's uh, it, it really sort of flies. Um, and, uh, I wish you all the
1: best luck with it. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a pleasure. And thank you for your thoughtful questions. Absolutely.